It's January 2003. In a quiet Cambridgeshire house, 91-year-old retired physicist Alan Nunmay lays uncomfortably on his bed, his head propped up by a mountain of pillows. Nunmay is dying, and he knows it. He's suffering from pneumonia and finds each breath sharp and painful. But death has never been a stranger to Nunmay. As a nuclear scientist, he's worked on dangerous projects which have put his own life at risk. Projects such as creating the atom bomb. Today, though, Nun May's mind isn't focused on science. He has a confession to make. Mustering up any remaining strength he can find, Nun May softly calls for his family members to come into his room. The door swings open, and he's greeted by his son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter. He wants his beloved family to listen carefully to the shocking story he's moments away from revealing. You see, Nun May is not an ordinary physicist. The retired scientist has a sketchy past that's earned him international recognition. His name has inspired hatred and distrust from his fellow Britons. And it all boils down to one decision he made while he was working as a scientist, aged just 31 years old. Nunmay asks his son to turn on the tape recorder and requests that his granddaughter, Alice, take down notes. He wants this confession to be published in a UK newspaper, most likely to redeem his reputation, so he can't take any risks with its accuracy. The tape recorder churns noisily at his bedside, and Nunmay takes a deep breath. He knows that the words he's about to utter will attract the interest of millions throughout the country. They might even grab the attention of British and American intelligence. So, with a last look to his family, Nunmay begins with a sentence the entire Western world has tried to understand for over 50 years. This is the disclosure of how I became a Russian spy. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Alan Nunmay, a Cambridge-educated scientist who became a Russian spy. It's about the secrets of World War II and the joint Anglo-American efforts to create an atom bomb. It's about a man who willingly handed over British and American secrets to the Russians. An unexpected act of defection which finally led MI5 straight to their traitor and the dangerous, lasting implications his disloyalty had for the rest of the world. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. 
They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Alan Nunmay is born in Kings Norton, Birmingham in 1911. As the son of a metal worker and youngest of four children, he has a simple and modest start to life. However, the young boy begins to shine as soon as he attends school. It's obvious to his friends, teachers, and parents that Nunmay is exceptionally bright. He achieves top marks in all of his subjects, with science taking center stage. Due to his academic prowess, he's awarded a scholarship to Birmingham's prestigious King Edward School. Soon after, in 1930, he gains a place to study physics at Trinity Hall, Cambridge. But as Nunmay grows up, it isn't just his scientific interests which develop. He also becomes passionate about politics. Perhaps due to his working-class background, the increasing number of industrial strikes or simply a desire to be part of a new movement, Nunmay's ideals shift sharply to the left. He starts sympathizing with an ideology that's gaining popularity in the East. Communism. Nunmay breezes through his undergraduate years at Cambridge. As predicted by his peers and professors, he graduates with a first-class degree in physics in 1933 and is invited to join the university's renowned PhD program. However, once again, it's not just physics which occupies his mind. During his time at Cambridge, he is also heavily involved in politics. While completing his research, Nunmay remains a loyal follower of communism and joins the many students at Cambridge who share his revolutionary ideals. The far-left ideology isn't yet the taboo subject it will become in the post-war years, and Nunmay enjoys being a part of this exciting movement. Over the next few years, his political ideas grow stronger. So much so that, in 1936, he joins the Communist Party of Great Britain. That same year, he also accepts a position as a lecturer at King's College London. It's the Communist Party where he makes his most valuable and long-lasting connections, relationships which will influence him for the duration of his life. But as time goes on and Britain prepares for war, Nunmay's ideologies will take on a life of their own and begin to blur the line of who the real enemy is. It's April 1940, and while the world is at war, Physicists are making huge advancements in their field. They theorize that they can build a bomb which would be destructive enough to end the war, a single explosion that would be the equivalent of blowing up 1,000 tons of dynamite. And it's more than just a theory. At Birmingham University, two talented scientists, Otto Frisch and Rudolf Perls, have worked out exactly how to make this weapon. A process called nuclear fission can be used to split apart an atom from an unstable element such as uranium or plutonium. Once it's split, neutrons will escape and release energy, causing an unstoppable chain reaction. This will emit extraordinary amounts of energy in an exceedingly short space of time, thus creating the all-powerful atom bomb. All they need to do now 
is build it. By mid-1942, Britain and America have a small number of top-secret organizations dedicated to the development of the atom bomb. Amongst these is the Tube Alloys Project. Based in Cambridge's Cavendish Laboratory and run by university professor James Chadwick, its doors are watertight and the lips of every scientist completely sealed. Only government officials and senior physicists have access to this top-secret research. Chadwick wastes no time in recruiting one of his brightest former students, a now 31-year-old Alan Nunmay. He's part of the team committed to researching the strength of three atomic elements which are candidates for the bomb's fuel. Uranium-235, Uranium-233, and Plutonium. However, despite his academic pedigree, Nunmay is the wrong man for the job. Within months of working on the project, his loyalty will be questioned and he'll make a decision which will not only influence the rest of his own life, but will place the nation's safety in imminent danger. It's 1942, and as part of his work for the top secret group, 31-year-old Alan Nunmay reads and assesses numerous reports about nuclear energy. One such paper he comes across is a classified document from America. It speculates that the Nazis might be one step ahead of the Allies and may have already developed their own superbomb. The United States has reason to believe that, if this is the case, the Germans are likely to deploy the bomb on Russia. It's the latter part of this prediction which disturbs Nunmay. He still holds tightly on to his communist ideals and feels a deep connection to the Soviet Union. He knows that the Russians have no idea of the existence of this report. They're probably not even entertaining the possibility of nuclear warfare. Even though Russia, Britain, and America are all allies against Germany, very few of their wartime secrets are shared, and Russia is excluded from the efforts to make a nuclear bomb. Nunmay vehemently opposes this isolation of a key ally. He believes Russia should be warned about a nuclear attack, even if it goes against the laws of his own nation. And so, fueled perhaps by his lifelong communist tendencies, Nunmay makes a dangerous decision. He warns the Russians of the alleged nuclear threat. Although Nunmay hasn't been actively involved in the Communist Party of Great Britain since the start of the war, he still has a number of friends from his activist days. But before reaching out to any of them, he needs to be absolutely certain that this is the correct course of action. As a member of the Tube Alloys Project, Nunmay is sworn to silence by Britain's Official Secrets Act. Breaking it would result in a lengthy jail sentence. But perhaps deciding it's worth the risk, Nunmay contacts several Russian associates and shares the Anglo-American atomic secrets. There is no turning back now. Nunmay has officially committed treason. If Nunmay had hoped to be rewarded by the Russians for this severe act of betrayal, he's mistaken. The Russians simply brush off the warning and deem it inconsequential. They don't believe for a second that the Nazis are close to developing a nuclear bomb. However, 
they do see the attraction of utilizing Nunmei, so they book him as a Russian spy. Ottawa, Canada, 1943. The tube alloys have been relocated from Cambridge to Canada, a change which has led to vast developments in the Anglo-American rush to create the atomic bomb. The move has enabled America to establish its own nuclear program, known as the Manhattan Project. Hope is strong that the scientists are close to completing their super bomb and putting an end to the war. British and American scientists have concluded that uranium-233, uranium-235, and plutonium are all effective elements for the construction of the bomb. This is because the atoms that make up the metals are easily split apart and generate huge amounts of energy upon release. Nunmei decides that this information could be vital to the Soviet cause. So during his time in Ottawa, he steals small amounts of uranium and plutonium from the laboratories. Even today, the details of his theft remain vague. All that's known is that he passes the samples on to an anonymous courier who takes them to a designated Russian agent. But his betrayal doesn't end there. You see, it's not enough for the Russian authorities to receive the foundations of a nuclear bomb. They want more. And so, Acting under his Russian codename, Alec, Nunmei gives the USSR a wealth of information about atomic warfare. He makes copies of top-secret research documents, diagrams of future atomic reactors, and somehow finds out and shares the precise number of nuclear materials stored in different locations across the United States. Understandably, the Russians celebrate his efforts and are grateful for the rich details he so regularly supplies them with. So they offer Nunmei a payment. Agents from the GRU, Russia's intelligence organization, meet with Nunmei and present him with a $200 reward, along with two bottles of whiskey. It's a modest exchange for his risky antics, and Nunmei turns it down. Perhaps he's insulted at this pathetic excuse of a gift, or... Maybe he knows how dangerous it would be to have physical proof of his betrayal. Despite Nunmei's rejection, the Russians hand over the money and whiskey as planned. To the Russians, he is officially on their payroll. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. It's July 16th, 1945, 5 a.m. In New Mexico, at the Alamo Gordo bombing and gunnery range, British and American officials gather excitedly. Today, they plan to drop the world's first atomic bomb, in an experiment known as the Trinity Test. 
the leaders of the Manhattan Project huddle in a tall shelter on the nearby Compania Hill, around 20 miles from where the bomb is set to be released. Meanwhile, scientists from the project crane their necks from shelters stationed thousands of meters away. At 5.29 a.m., the bomb is released. The sky lights up in a bright neon glow. Gold, purple, violet, and blue rays shoot into the air and blind the spectators. The ground they stand on rumbles and shakes with the force of an earthquake. The bomb leaves an enormous crater where it falls, measuring 10 feet deep and 1,000 feet wide. Even though the vibrations of the explosion rumbled through nearby cities in New Mexico and lit up America's morning sky, the nation is informed that these were simply the effects of detonating a bunker in the Jornada del Muerto desert. No one else can know about the atom bomb just yet. Knowledge of what really happened is limited only to the scientists of the Manhattan Project and tube alloys, as well as a handful of government officials. However, there's one glitch in this plan of secrecy, and his name is Alan Nunmay. Nunmay is more than happy to provide detailed information about the Trinity test to the Russians. He extensively describes the nature of the explosion, the science behind the bomb, as well as the project's successful results. And so, while America and Britain relax in their self-assurance that they can soon end the war with one fatal explosion, the Russians get busy making their own stash of nuclear supplies. But Russia's efforts may be in vain, as on August 6, 1945, the race for nuclear energy is over. America and Britain have won. American forces drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Japan in order to force the enemy to surrender. The explosion devastates the Japanese city, instantly killing 80,000 people and exposing tens of thousands more to toxic radiation. Their military actions are then repeated just three days later in Nagasaki, a city almost 200 miles from Hiroshima. This second atomic explosion kills an additional 40,000 people. The bombings cause a devastating loss of life on a scale the world has never before witnessed. They trigger enormous heartbreak and grief all throughout Japan. As a result, Japan surrenders on September 2nd, and as Germany surrendered four months ago, the war is officially over for everyone. Thanks to the creation of the atom bomb, the Allies have won. It's September 1945, and Canada is awash with celebrations. The Allies have declared victory over the Nazis, and the war is finally over. However, not everyone is celebrating in Canada. Igor Guzenko, a Russian cipher clerk working at the Soviet embassy, is reluctant to return to his homeland as he's been told to do. He's grown accustomed to the Canadian way of life. The beauty of the country, the friendliness of his neighbors, and Canada's liberal politics. He can't stand the thought of trading all his freedom for a dark, oppressive post-war Russia. And so on September the 6th, just four days after the war has been declared over, Guzenko makes the decision to defect to the West. He walks out of the Soviet embassy as if it's simply the end to any normal day. But under his arm, 
he clutches a briefcase full of evidence proving that Russia is no longer a friend. His satchel bursts with Russian codebooks, deciphering materials, and pages upon pages of damning secrets. Kuzenko hopes that by revealing these documents, he'll be able to remain in Ottawa. The next morning, on September 7th, Kuzenko approaches a group of officers at the Canadian Mounted Police, who escort him to Camp X, a secret World War II base. Here, he's questioned by agents from Britain's MI5 and America's FBI. Kuzenko presents all 109 documents he seized from the Russian embassy. Together, they prove that the Russians can no longer be trusted as an ally. His evidence reveals that spies in Canada have been regularly spilling highly classified information to Russia, including details on diplomatic, scientific, and military secrets. They've also been feeding the Russians important accounts about the atom bomb. Kuzenko warns the agents that the Russians are now planning to work against the West. Among the list of 21 names Kuzenko identifies as spies is none other than 34-year-old Alan Nunmay. The repercussions of Kuzenko's defection are huge. Anglo-American trust is temporarily ripped to shreds, and Congress swiftly passes the McMahon Act, which imposes serious restrictions on the exchange of atomic secrets. Britain and Canada are immediately cut off from America's nuclear program and forced to make their own atomic weapons. In this post-war world, it seems as though no one can be trusted. Fortunately for Guzenko, his gamble pays off, and he and his family are granted asylum in Canada. They're given new identities and protection against Russian authorities. However, the future for Alan Nunmay does not look quite so safe. As soon as British intelligence learns of his treachery, they'll mark him as a war criminal and monitor his every move. It's October, 1945. Alan Nunmay has returned to London where he plans to meet with his Russian handler. Now that the war is over, it's not clear whether Nunmay expects to continue trading secrets with the Russians or if the meeting is to formally terminate all communication. Nunmay has been informed that his exchange will take place on one of three days, the 7th, 17th, or 27th of October. He is to wait outside of the British Museum for his handler, who will be carrying a copy of the Times newspaper under his left arm. The prepared conversation will go as follows. What's the shortest way to the Strand? Well, come along, I'm going that way. Thanks to Kuzenko, MI5 has learned these valuable details. They hope that if they track Nunmay's movements, he'll unintentionally lead them to more senior Russian officials. You see, they're desperate to catch the individuals who recruited Nunmay and organized the traitorous spy ring. But intelligence and espionage work both ways, and Nunmay is warned about the MI5 agents on his back, so he never turns up to the meeting. After weeks of inconspicuously following Nunmay with no results, MI5 grows weary. And so on February 15, 1946, they bring Nunmay in for questioning, using the facade that it's a routine procedure for the scientists that worked on the Tube Alloys project. Then, they accuse him of treason. 
At first, Nunmei denies everything. He claims to have no knowledge of ever meeting Soviet contacts and feigns surprise when told about Kuzenko's suspected traitors from Ottawa. But MI5 aren't fooled by his guise of innocence. They meet with him again on February 20th and interrogate the scientist about his job during the war. Perhaps because he senses he's beaten or he finally wants to come clean, Nunmei admits to being a Russian spy. He writes an official confession of his crimes, where he reveals that he handed over samples of uranium, as well as classified information about the atomic bomb. But frustratingly for British intelligence, Nunmei remains tight-lipped about the involvement of others. He refuses to name his handlers and doesn't give away any connections. On March 1st, 1946, Nunmei is arrested in London and charged with breaking the Official Secrets Act. His trial date is set for two months' time, where his fate will be decided by a British jury. It's May 1st, 1946, and at London's Old Bailey Criminal Court, Alan Nunmei is on trial. Today, he's facing the charge of deliberately violating Britain's Official Secrets Act through passing information calculated to be directly or indirectly useful to an enemy. Although Nunmei confessed to MI5 that he was a spy for Russia during World War II and is pleading guilty to the charges against him, he doesn't believe his actions are worthy of punishment. Firstly, Nunmei claims that he didn't pass secrets to an enemy, seeing that Russia, Britain, and the United States were all allies during World War II. This is a technicality which may well just save his life. If he had passed secrets to an overt enemy such as the Nazis, he'd be facing the death penalty. But considering that Russia was technically an ally, his sentence could be less severe. Next, Nunmei denies ever receiving payment for his espionage. He says that he didn't do it for the money or gifts and promptly burned the $200 he was handed by the GRU. Finally, Nunmei tries in vain to defend his actions. He explains that he shared the secrets purely for the good of mankind. He was reluctant to let America become the world's sole nuclear power. He and many other scientists allegedly believed that this monopoly of atomic energy would cause a drastic imbalance throughout the planet. However, the court has no patience for Nunmei's excuses. The prosecuting lawyer states that Russia was not authorized to be given classified information. Nunmei is found guilty of deliberately violating the Official Secrets Act and participating in espionage during his time in Canada. As punishment, he's sentenced to 10 years hard labor in Wakefield Prison. The trial of Alan Nunmei is the first case of its kind in Britain. He's the first man ever to be convicted of leaking Anglo-American atomic secrets to Russia, and his trial catalyzes a colossal hunt to unearth more spies. Alan Nunmei serves just six out of his proposed 10 years in prison and is released for good behavior in December, 1952. But the welcome he receives is far from warm. The 41-year-old physicist is blacklisted from working at all universities in the UK and most scientific organizations are desperate to steer clear of the known traitor. But it doesn't take long for Nunmei to attract interest from MI5 again. In 1953, 
just one year after his release from prison, he marries former Austrian scientist Hildegard Broda. Hilda is the former wife of nuclear physicist Engelbert Broda, one of the scientists who worked closely with Nunmei on the Tube Alloys project in 1942. Similarly to Nunmei, Broda was a member of the Communist Party and had been actively involved in communist politics before moving to Britain at the start of the war. MI5 agents suspect that Engelbert Broda was also engaged in espionage during World War II, and that either he or his ex-wife recruited Nunmei. If this is true, then they'll have finally found the traitors who sabotaged Britain's wartime secrecy. But it's just guesswork. During both interrogations with MI5, his court trial, and even a prison interview in 1949, Nunmei has firmly kept his mouth shut about the specifics of his espionage and has never given any names. Despite MI5's suspicions, neither Nunmei or his new bride do anything else that could be considered criminal. They emigrate from Cambridge to Ghana in 1961, where they lead a quiet life, bringing up their young son and lecturing at a local university. But Britain has not heard the last of Alan Nunmei. When he returns to Cambridge in 1979, it will just be a matter of time until he's ready to speak about his espionage. Over two decades later, as an elderly, frail man with little communist spark left in him, his deathbed confession might finally give MI5 the answers they've been looking for. It's December 2002, with his son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter gathered around his bedside, 91-year-old Alan Nunmei finishes recounting his confession. Over the last hour and a half, he's explained to his family what he did as a Russian spy. He told them somewhat proudly that, I provided all the information I could. He states that, after his first act of betrayal, he would have stopped at this point except there were crucial developments in the nuclear project in the U.S., and there was a lot of information about the American decision to use the nuclear bomb against the Japanese. These words show that he still believes his treachery was humanitarian. He did it to prepare the world for nuclear attacks. However, it's surprising that Nunmei still attaches such pride to his actions. After all, their consequences were truly disastrous. In 1946, when Russia tested its own atom bomb, the United States was completely blindsided. It then vowed to never share its scientific secrets with any other country, a rash decision which offended both Britain and Canada. But Nunmei's betrayal also catalyzed a far more sinister problem, the Cold War. Along with numerous other spies, Nunmei supplied Russia with the knowledge and means to construct its own nuclear arsenal. His actions ensured that two powerful countries had the ability to detonate each other. If Nunmei and others like him hadn't been so quick to leak the atomic secrets of Britain and America, who knows whether the Cold War would have ever occurred. Although it's never released to the public, Nunmei's deathbed confession may have finally provided the names of his Russian contacts. 
In articles published shortly after his words were recorded, two names suddenly appear in association with Nunme, Pavel Angelov and Nikolai Zabotin. Allegedly, it was Angelov, a Russian intelligence agent, who initially approached Nunme and asked him to supply further information about atomic energy. Then, while in Canada, Nunme was under the control of Colonel Nikolai Zabotin. Zabotin disguised himself as a military attaché for the Allies, but was in fact running a highly developed infiltration project. Nunme passed classified information straight to Colonel Zabotin. It's possible that journalists gleaned this new information from Nunme's deathbed confession. Interestingly, in revealing the names of his handlers, Nunme negates MI5's suspicion that either of the Brodas recruited Nunme. It's most likely that his disloyalty was instigated entirely by Russians. Alan Nunme dies peacefully on January 12, 2003, days after giving his confession. As Britain's first convicted atomic spy, he won't be remembered kindly by patriots. However, he's not the only one who betrayed his country. The United States, Britain, and Canada were each infiltrated by advanced networks of Russian spies, many of whom were caught and put on trial for their treachery. However, some spies managed to slip under the radar and remain unknown to this day. It's possible that Nunmei had more names and information than what he chose to reveal in his deathbed confession. But what these remaining secrets are, we'll never know. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Christopher Trent. On the surface, he's charming and caring. Everything that single mom Rebecca Hogue is looking for. But Trent has a darker side. One that, in the wrong circumstances, can spell danger for anyone nearby. Rebecca doesn't realize it, but inviting him into their home will change hers and her two-year-old son's lives forever. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>